Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to Cinemaholics. I am not your usual host, John Negroni, but rather from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I'm your usual co-host, Will Ashton, a pop culture writer for Cinema Blend, and then I also obviously write for Cinemaholics.com. But joining me, as per usual, is our good friend from Kansas City, the film editor from The Pitch with bylines from Slash Film, Cricket Marquee, Rodgeever.com, and etc. It's Abby Chessie. Hey, Abby. Hi. Hello. <laughs> this is a little weird because I'm not used to uh, host this show, let alone just being the, the two of us, but we'll hopefully make it through. I bet we will. Yeah. Unfortunately, John, um, last minute, found some fairly unfortunate news, so he's unable to join us this week, but we were talking before hopefully he'll be able to join us next week because i know he was really excited to talk about our main review which will be run which is the uh, f- uh sophomore film from uh you know how to pronounce the filmmaker's name i forgot to look up beforehand i i feel bad but um uh i i can't get his last name ah, the life of me um <laughs> hold on just a second yeah uh, anish chaganti is is there the director go. of that one yeah yeah, um, this is the software film for him for uh, Searching, which came out, I believe, uh, 2017 or 2018. Uh, and then, yeah, this is his long-awaited second film. But uh, unfortunately, John, even though he was a big fan of Searching, I know he really wanted to talk about this film, but unfortunately, he's not here. But I'm sure next week, if he's around, he'll be able to fill us in on what he thought about the film. But before we get into that, uh, you can find more episodes of the show on our full archive on cinemaholics.com including our written reviews and you can also write into the show anytime by emailing us at cinemaholicspodcasts at gmail.com and you can support us directly by becoming one of our monthly patrons at patreon.com slash cinemaholics all right so um just before we get into the main show we have a extra milestone to plug sam nolan once again uh, he was joined by two guests this time it's a little weird because usually he has one guest on to talk about uh, whatever films that he decides to talk about on the show. But this time he talked about uh, All About Eve and Rebel Without a Cause, which are two films. I don't know. I've been meaning to see both of them uh, for a long time. I'm assuming, Abby, you're much more uh, caught up on these two films than I am. I actually am not, unfortunately. They're both on my to-watch list. So I'm, oh, really? I'm curious to, yeah, to watch those and then listen to what uh, Sam and his guests had to say about them. Yeah. I mean, I've seen um, clips from Rebel Without a Cause. I know I've seen like the um, like the car chase scene and like a few other scenes from the film. But for whatever reason, I haven't seen the whole thing all the way through. But um, if you have seen the films or if you haven't, I mean, I'm sure Sam is very mindful of spoilers. Um, you can check that out. The first half of the episode talking about all about Eve. He's joined by his guest, Robert Wilkinson. And then for the second half, he's joined by Anthony Bagdega, Bagdello. Uh, who was his previous co-host on his first podcast with us, which was called Anyway, That's All I Got, uh, which I've, I don't know if you ever got a chance to listen to that, but I, I definitely enjoyed that one as well, in addition to Extra Milestone. But unfortunately, that is no longer around. But thankfully, we still have Extra Milestone, which is always a delight. And I've been once I finally get a chance like you to uh, watch All About Eve and Roll Without a Cause, I'll definitely make a point to listen to what John and friends have, or Sam and friends have to say about the film. Um, but Abby, before we get into the main reviews, you had two uh, off topics that you were going to discuss. One was a miniseries that you have watched all but the last episode, I believe you said, called The Good Lord Bird. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? For sure. Uh, so The Good Lord Bird aired uh, or started airing earlier this fall on uh, Showtime. 
and it is an adaptation of a James McBride novel about uh, the bleeding Kansas era and about uh, John Brown. So I, I myself am from Lawrence, Kansas originally. And so uh, John Brown, who was a uh, an abolitionist and kind of in the domestic terrorist guerrilla fighter vein, um, he, he's he's a figure who looms large in Kansas and Kansas history and uh, looms large in the hearts of Lorenzians, particularly because he was uh, he spent a lot of time around that area of the state. Um, so it's a it's a fictionalized story about a uh, a young boy uh, named Onion who uh, comes into the care or comes into the the, the army sort of of John Brown. Uh, but John Brown mistakes Onion for a girl and uh, dresses him in women's clothing for the entirety of the series. Um, they have kind of a, a odd relationship. Um, Onion is uh, both impressed by John Brown and kind of loyal to to him for being kind to him, but also has kind of this odd um, relationship with the fact that he's he's living under an assumed identity because he's afraid to be honest about uh, about John Brown having made a mistake about him. Um, but it's, uh, I think it's really funny. Uh, Ethan Hawke plays, uh, plays John Brown and he is, um, just extremely likable and funny in that role. Um, David Diggs is also pretty prominent in the series. He plays Frederick Douglass and his portrayal of Douglass is really, uh, really interesting as well. Um, it's, it's a little different than kind of the, the traditional take that we usually get on historical figures like that. Um, so yeah, in general, it's just, it's a really enjoyable series. Uh, I think it's also uh, really dramatic and it's acted really well. Uh, I think Ethan Hawke was um, part of the producing and showrunning team putting this together. So he's, he's really invested in it and you can, you can tell um, because of his, his performance and also the performances of the folks um, around that central performance. It's, it's just, it's a lot of fun. I liked it a lot. And whether or not you are a fan of, um, of Kansas history, of uh, abolition history. I, I think there's a lot to enjoy there. Nice. Did you say what station I was on? Yeah, it's on Showtime. Cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm always down for a Western. Um, I know definitely when you and John were talking about the Queen Gambit, I was thinking like, man, I got to get around to watching Godless too. That was on Netflix, the show that uh, mm. Scott Frank made before this. But yeah, I've been seeing some word of mouth about the show. Unfortunately, I haven't seen too many advertisements from it, but I definitely see every time I see something about I'm like, man, I got to get on this because I love seeing like uh, Westerns like this, very character driven, but also kind of drawn out through the uh, miniseries format. So that's a very fun recommendation for me, I say. And then uh, you got a uh, Fellini set, I believe you said. I, I did. Yeah. So yeah. Criterion this month uh, is putting out a uh, giant box set uh, celebrating the work of uh, Federico Fellini, the uh, Italian neo um yeah, the Italian New Wave director, sorry. Um, and uh, he's like famous for movies like uh, Juliet of the Spirits, La Dolce Vita, uh, Eight and a Half, um, a lot of films, well, a lot of films in general, but those are some of the yeah. biggest ones. Um, and uh, the uh, the box set that they have just put out is this like 14 film collection and they're gorgeous. It's all uh, like Blu-ray, 4K restoration with loads of special features and it comes with um two separate books um one that's like a scholarly guide to uh the films and to Fellini's career and the other that is just kind of a set of essays by uh filmmakers and writers um all of whom 
you definitely will have heard of, um, like folks like Bilga Beery, who writes, wrote for uh, The Village Voice and now does a lot of work for um, a variety of sites, including Vulture, um, and uh, filmmakers like uh, Kogonada, who made Columbus. Um, so lots of cool thoughts from them on some of their favorite Fellini movies as well. Um, also, the box is gorgeous. So I just I wanted to plug that because Fellini is kind of a, a, a blind spot for me as well. I've seen a couple of his movies, but uh, want to watch more. So the opportunity to um, to grab a, a review copy of that set was pretty exciting. So I'm I'm planning on using that to kind of fill a lot of my quarantine time between here <laughs> and the end of maybe next year. I don't know. It's, right. Yeah. As a as a gift, I think anybody that you would get this for would be pretty grateful because there's enough here to keep you busy for a very, very long time. Yeah, it sounds like a great buy and definitely a great way to spend, like you said, quarantine time in these very uncertain times, because um, like you, I've I've only really seen, I think, just eight and a half as far as my Fellini background is concerned. But if you are much more well versed in Fellini and you get this box set, be sure to listen to our extra milestone episode where I believe Sam Nolan and John Negroni talked about uh, La Dolce Vita. Uh, which is one of John Negroni's favorite films, and I believe certainly <laughs> his favorite uh, Fellini film. But yeah, like you, I, I definitely need to catch up on a lot of these, so I'll have to keep that in mind for maybe my own Christmas list. But it sounds like it's it's expensive, or is it fairly reasonably priced? It is. It's it's pretty expensive. I would okay. say that it's worth it given the right. amount of content that's in there. But yeah, for sure, quality. it's yeah, and the quality as well. <laughs> like it's it's Criterion, so like it's yeah. everything that you would expect out of a Criterion release, like fourteen mm-hmm. times over. So. Um, yeah, it's it's a little bit up there, but I think just in terms of the amount of enjoyment that a person could get out of it, it's I think it's worth it. Yeah, I know they've done a couple box sets at the Criterion. I know last year, I believe around this time, they did the Godzilla collection, which is just the the huge like 50 plus years of Godzilla movies in one package, which is just an amazing deal as well. So obviously we're big fans of the Criterion collection and everything they do to preserve a lot of these classic films and uh, even stuff like Godzilla movies, which not all of them are equal, obviously, but uh, the fact they're willing to put them out in one big, beautiful package, uh, same with the Fleeny collection is definitely an amazing thing that they're doing. But um, before we get into the main reviews, we also um, wanted to point out that we did get a lot of um, voicemails for the Ron Howard question that we posed last week, uh, which was asking people what were their favorite uh, Ron Howard films as well as their you know least favorite Ron Howard films. But uh, because John has access to those voicemails, we don't uh, actually have a chance to play them this week. So I suppose if you want to, if you missed the deadline last time and you wanted to uh, answer, you can feel free to do so. But unfortunately, we won't have a chance to play those, but we will hopefully get a chance to do so next week. So I am looking yeah. forward to hearing what people have to say. I don't know if we got the chance to talk about it. Uh, Abby, do I you was have about a to ask that. Yeah. yeah, I was about to ask that of you as well. I wasn't sure if we'd actually gotten to, to answer that question ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Favorite Ron Howard movie. I think... I think I would go with Apollo 13. He's done several that I that I like quite a bit, but that might be the one that I that I like the most. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think I had watched it. I've watched it before, but I watched it again recently, like a couple of years ago. Uh, I think it was like the anniversary of the moon landing, and so I was kind of getting big on on early space program movies for a little bit there, and I just was. Uh, reminded of how uh, how really solid it is, and I, I like movies a lot that are about about process and about figuring things out. And there's a lot of really good process in that movie. A lot of which I think comes from uh, the the screenwriter uh, who is also I can't remember his name for the life of me, but he's also the guy the filmmaker who made uh, the documentary for All Mankind, which is like a, a really highly detailed uh, 
film about the early days of the space program. So like all of the stuff that's in Apollo 13 feels very real and very human and connected because it's it's being told by somebody who actually gets it. Nice. Yeah. Um, the screenwriters are William Broilis Jr. and Al Wright Hurt. I'm not sure yeah. which one you're yeah, referring yeah. to, but yeah. It's, yeah, it's Al. Yeah. Um, yeah, I actually, I'm right there with you. I think if I had to pick a favorite from Ron Howard as a director, that would probably be mine as well. Not only because I think it's his best film, but because it's probably his best or I think, in my opinion, most well-directed film as well. So that's a pretty easy pick for me. <laughs> I wish there, we have maybe a little bit more of a uh, back and forth. But I do also really like um, Frost Nixon. I think that might be my second favorite from him, as well as uh, Cinderella Man is another one I really like a lot. Uh, just looking back on some of his more recent stuff, or I guess, I guess that's not really recent because those are both about, uh, uh, I guess almost like 15 years old now, but, um, I also really did enjoy rush. I think that's the last one of his that I remember really being taken by, uh, certainly from a directorial standpoint, but, uh, do you have a least favorite since we also posed that question? Yeah. Um, it's, and it's good that you mentioned rush because that's one that I, I keep like, I, I feel like I get reminded of it every once in a while as a thing that I should watch and haven't seen yet. So oh, yeah. I'll have oh, yeah, it's that good. Out. yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I, I think at this point, Hillbilly Elegy is pretty low down there. Ooh. Um, it's yeah. yeah. Sorry. Sorry, Ron Howard. Um, <laughs> that one's pretty rough. I'm not wild about solo, but I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna put it all the way at the bottom. Um, I feel like that's, that's, it's a fine movie. It's kind of middling. Um, that's probably going to get me some hate from some Star Wars folks, but, um, the, uh, there's there's kind of a current Twitter discussion going over whether Solo or Rogue One is the better movie. I think it's Rogue One for sure. But um, <laughs> yeah, but in terms of Ron Howard stuff, yeah, I'm I'm really not keen on on Hillbillyology. I feel like that's going to be. Uh, I mean, it already is a movie that has been getting some pretty negative reactions. I feel like that's going to be kind of a black mark for a while. Yeah, I mean, I can't say I'm surprised, but I mean, yeah, just knowing that it's his most recent film and we have to say it's his worst doesn't really uh, it doesn't really serve as a fitting tribute, I guess, to Ron Howard. But nevertheless, um, I don't know if I, it's my least favorite, but the one that I have, I guess, the strongest negative feelings for is How the Grinch Stole Christmas, which is a film that um, as a kid <laughs> I watched a lot. So I know it very, very well, but um, it's a film that I think. As an adaptation, it's terrible <laughs> for uh, several reasons. But um, yeah, that one's pretty rough. I I had forgotten about that. Yeah, I mean, but I mean, at the same time, I I do have to commend Jim Carrey for committing wholly to the part, and the makeup work obviously is incredible. Sure, but yeah. um, yeah, I have I have a lot of feelings on that film. Um, but we didn't mention the paper, which is I believe another one of his films that's considered like one of his best. Um, it is. I love the paper. I had forgotten about that. Yeah, Ron Howard has such a wide and varied career yeah i think paper would be up there with apollo 13 as, as one that i really like a lot that was uh i have some some kind of personal feelings about that movie because that was one that our uh at my college newspaper uh in uh back in pittsburgh kansas when i first started college our uh editor-in-chief that was the movie that he liked to show to new recruits at the beginning of every year so that's nice fond fond memories of the paper yeah i mean i remember when i was in college my um guidance counselor was advising that i see it but for a reason i never got around to it uh which i feel bad about but um in any case you know he has a huge like you said very eclectic uh filmography filled with films that i guess don't really have a wide like uh artistic stamp on but clearly show that you know when he is in the right vehicle he can make something that's really commendable and something's quite good but uh obviously like you said hillbilly elegy is not <laughs> that type of film uh from what you've seen and uh i, I guess i won't I don't imagine my opinion if I do get around to seeing it will be much different, but alas, uh, 
you know, hopefully the next one is a little bit better for him. But I have, uh, I have hope. I'm not going to condemn Ron Howard outright for one bad movie. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, like we said, like he he's such a like um, inconsistent filmmaker as far as like just making films of like not only uh, different genres and uh, scales, but also just making a like uh, just all over the map type of films as far as his quality. Like sometimes he'll come out with a great film. Sometimes he'll make a film that's just like forgettable, like Inferno or like Da Vinci Code. And then, you know, he, he'll 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 bounce back. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, but, I have no uh, doubt. Yeah. Um, but let's get into our main review. So like we said before, our main review is going to be the new film from, let me see if I got this right. Anesh, uh, Chiganti. Yeah. This is his software film called run, which was initially going to be, uh, released in theaters through Lionsgate, but became a Hulu exclusive a little earlier this year when it became apparent that it wasn't going to have a wide or very prosperous, uh, theatrical run. So probably a smart move um, as far as just like making a film that uh, is pretty much home based already uh, a streaming exclusive, but this is the one with um, Sarah Paulson and Kira Allen. And uh, I don't know if that's, is this her debut? I didn't get a chance to see, but I know it's the first film of hers I've seen. Yeah. I don't believe it's her debut, but it's for sure a breakout. Um, yeah. I think this is it. Yeah. This, this would appear to be the biggest thing that she has been in to date. I think there's one other film that came out in 2014. Oh, wow. Yeah, I didn't I didn't re- see her in anything else as far as I could recall. But I mean, yeah, like you said, this is her obviously her breakout role and certainly the one that I think that will hopefully propel her career in a lot of good and beneficial ways. But uh, it also stars uh, Sarah Sean and Pat Haley, who I didn't realize was in the film uh, until I watched it. He gets a fun little cameo midway. He through. does. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm always happy to see that guy. Uh, very good letterbox follow, too, if you ever what are looking for someone fun to follow letterbox but um abby yeah uh tell us a little bit about the plot for this film and then what your general thoughts were sure uh so run is about a uh mother and daughter uh we'll start we'll start with that uh it's a thriller about a mother and daughter uh sarah paulson plays diane she's the mom uh kira allen is her daughter chloe And uh, Chloe has a lot of medical conditions that keep her confined to a wheelchair. She also has uh, like a heart arrhythmia. She has uh, asthma, just lots, lots of conditions that keep her kind of medically compromised and fragile. And uh, her mom, Diane, has been caring for her pretty much her entire life um, and has had her fairly sheltered to the house. Like they, they appear to live in the country. They have like, they grow their own food. and uh, Chloe is homeschooled. She's she's also she's about seventeen. She's getting ready to go to college, which is kind of the 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 fulcrum for for how things go the way they go. Um, so Diane is um, teaching teaching her from home, and she's uh, she's taught her a lot about uh, about STEM. She's very smart in uh, like engineering and 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 mathematics, especially. Uh, and she appears to be supportive of her daughter going to college there's kind of the sense that maybe not all is as it appears. Um, so Chloe discovers one day while going through the groceries, a uh, bottle of meds that her mom has brought home, presumably for, for Chloe, for one of her conditions. Uh, but it has her mom's name on the label and she's not sure what it is. And so her doubt regarding that revelation kind of becomes this giant tailspin of, how how much of her relationship is, with her mom is built on a lie? Uh, how sick is Chloe really? Um, and how how can she kind of escape 
her her mom's overbearing care of her and start living the life that she believes is is hers to live. Um, so it kind of it kind of becomes a um, I, I wouldn't say that it's exactly like whatever happened to baby Jane, but like some some similarities in terms of yeah. like the setting, like the closed house being dependent mm-hmm. on a caretaker. Um, right. Some of some similar obstacles are involved as well. Yeah, I mean, it's funny that you brought up that film because I was thinking about that, but I was also thinking of Mommy Dearest, which doesn't have uh, Joan Crawford, but obviously Faye Dunaway is playing Joan Crawford in that film, and it's kind of a sure. similar vibe to that as well. But yeah, I mean, definitely like uh, Misery was another film I heard this compared to mm-hmm. um, what was uh, there's something else I'm, I'm blanking on what it is right now, but yeah, I mean, there's there's films of the similar vein, but it's also like I don't want to make it seem like it's like a retread of those films, even though you can make some kind of simple comparisons to that, but. Uh, right. In any case, yeah. Uh, what were your thoughts on the film itself? Yeah, um, it's. I I think as the as the premise of the movie unfolds, which I feel like is from the opening moments fairly easy to cotton onto. Um, at least I I uh, I I've figured out more or less. I I had I had it kind of figured out what would likely happen. And I thought at one particular point that maybe I was wrong, but no, like it, it fits almost exactly what you think it's going to be from the opening moments, which is an interesting take on its particular subject matter. Uh, I wouldn't say that it's without some issues. Uh, I overall, I really like the movie. There are some some third act revelations that don't quite work, uh, that feel a little bit sloppy toward the the execution at, at the end. Um, but I think there's a lot there's a lot thematically that's interesting. Uh, there are some things that kind of made me feel a little less than great, but I don't think they tip into like outright problematic territory. Uh, overall, I think it's, it's pretty empowering in terms of being a, a film about a person with disabilities and particularly in the case of Kira Allen, who, who is wheelchair bound, um, in real life and puts in an amazingly physical performance, uh, as Chloe and does some, some incredible stuff that just, I think shows off the character's, mental capacity and determination um, and uh, unwillingness to be a victim, which is great and something that doesn't always happen in portrayals of people who are differently abled. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, it seems like our opinion on the film is going to be pretty similar in that. Yeah. I mean, I think even though Sarah Paulson's like the the person's on the cover and uh, the poster, I mean, and like being uh, shown throughout the promotion works, this is Kira Allen's movie through and through, not only because she's the main character, but in my opinion, I think she even outshines Sarah Paulson, which is not an easy thing to do because obviously we've seen a lot of great work from Sarah Paulson. She's kind of playing into this uh, part in a very fun and kind of toothy way. But um, yeah, as you were mentioning, this is, I believe, um, from what I read, the first major thriller to star a person who is in a wheelchair uh, in 70 years, which is, you know, no small accomplishment, even though it's a fairly contained film. Uh, and, uh, you know, definitely you can tell that, um, that perspective is something that, that makes it very humane, something that, that brings what's a kind of familiar premise into, it gives it a little bit more of a fresh and, uh, intriguing perspective in a way that you can feel the, uh, frustration and the like temptation of the main character and you get her point of view in a way that, like you said, it doesn't feel like it's exploitive or that it, um, is, you know, like a gimmick or any sort of way it's like actually trying to do something very good and very humane as far as giving a uh, genre film to a uh, person who you know like uh, let me let me figure out the best way to phrase this um a a um, disability that hasn't really been portrayed too well 
in film are portrayed too well from a main character perspective. And so obviously that's very humane and uh, definitely something worthwhile. And I think that's easily the thing that's uh, what we're hoping to champion. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you in that my biggest issue with searching was that I was really with it for the like first two thirds of it. But then the third act ultimately left me a little bit wanting as far as like, it feels like, uh, the director here, like he knows how to set up a really solid premise. He has an idea as far as like executing it really well and very clever. But then like when it comes time to actually wrap it up and uh, put it into a like nice little bow, it, it always ends up being a little bit lacking, um, at least from his first two films. I, I, I definitely got that sense from that film. And then I ultimately, to a lesser extent, felt that way with uh, this film because like you were alluding to, it, it felt like it was setting itself up for be like a really solid genre little film, you know, contained in the house, you know, having our two lead actors bounce off each other in really compelling and unique ways. Then without getting too far into the spoiler territory, it does kind of seem like it wraps up in a fairly, uh, yeah, like it, I guess convoluted to borderline problematic sort of way, which unfortunately uh, hinders the experience overall. But uh, like you were saying, I definitely appreciate the first two thirds a lot that I, I think this is an easy film to champion, especially on Hulu. Yeah, I would I would agree. It's it feels weird that there have been so many movies that were going to get theatrical releases this year and then came out on streaming to say that so many of them, I feel like work better on streaming. But I feel like this does, honestly, um, it's I, I'm not sure if the 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 format like allows you to overlook some of the stuff that doesn't always quite work, especially toward the end. Like there's there's some uh, revelation of information that just like in the logistical sense does not work. Um, but uh, I, I feel like I'm willing to overlook it because the rest of it is so tight and I'm, I'm fairly pleased that something that is that uh, otherwise tight and interesting uh, in terms of perspective is something that you can find on a streaming service like Hulu. It's, you know, widely available. It's entertaining. It's um, for what it is. I think it's pretty good. Yeah. And I realized we were talking the movie I was actually thinking of was the show The Act, which is also a Hulu exclusive, which has a somewhat similar plot this film and i think one of the advantages to uh having this be on hulu and on streaming is that this might have a bigger audience than it would have in theaters because i don't know if people would have uh been inclined to see us in theaters but definitely watching on streaming especially now uh makes it pretty accessible and i, I hope film that uh, hopefully a film that can reach a wide audience and and do a lot of good so uh like we can get into our final thoughts from there um abby what did you think overall of the film and what grade would you give it um overall i thought it was I, I think it's it's probably a pretty solid B from me. Um, I think there are some script elements that don't quite work. The um, the ultimate kind of twist of it isn't that hard to guess, but um, I think the the concept behind it is pretty fresh. I think Kira Allen is great. Uh, Sarah Paulson puts in a pretty solid performance as well. Um, kind of drawing on her uh, American Horror Story chops, I think, to uh, create a character that is both. Uh, horrific and also very restrained. Um, so I, yeah, there's, there's a lot that I like about it. Uh, there's some stuff that could be better, but I think overall that doesn't diminish the fact that it's an enjoyable movie to watch and has some, some interesting thoughts going on in there. So yeah, a B from me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in addition to all the um, people you just celebrated, I also want to point out um, the editing I thought from Nick Johnson and Will Merrick was really solid. And I think it helps to help uh, give the film a lot of really tight, strong pacing throughout which keeps your investment throughout even when it starts to get a little bit silly at least for my interest but um for me 
yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. My only real complaints are that I, I kind of wish by the second half or at least the third act, it was a little bit more willing to indulge in the campy aspects. That I think we're starting to become apparent. And I, I think maybe if he was a little bit more willing to indulge that side of the film, that would have made some of the more sillier aspects of the third act. Um, maybe stick the landing a little bit more. And maybe that would have helped it uh, kind of find its rhythm in that that last uh, 20 or 30 minutes. But overall, yeah, like you said, I think this is a really great showcase for Keir Allen. And also it's a solid uh, studio effort from Anesh Chikantri. Uh, so, um, yeah, I mean, I think for everyone involved, this is a, you know, small scale, but easily a win for uh, the filmmaker and the lead actors. And, uh, you know, definitely I think, uh, you know, we see a lot of filmmakers who, they make a really solid independent film and then they jump into a like major blockbuster like Jurassic World or like a Marvel movie or something. And I really appreciate that. Uh, he definitely this is a bigger film, a studio effort from the director, but it's also a pretty small scale. And it seems like a fairly economical film to jump into as far as a follow up to that. So I'm really curious to follow his career from this point forward and see uh, what he does next, because um, like I was saying before, I think this is basically as good, if not better than searching. I know John will disagree with that, but. Um, I definitely was impressed by it, and I'm curious to see where one goes from here. So, yeah, that was Run, and that's on Hulu now. Think of a favorite show. Have you ever wondered what the writers were thinking? Or how you might have done things differently? Welcome to Right or Wrong. Got him, Rory. Get your mom. It's chaos. Rory dives out of the way as Chalmers lunges towards Marky and Tasia and begins firing. Most of the crew runs out of the house in all directions, having not signed up. I mean, I've got my own thoughts on where well, or on where I think you should go, but just by the writing. I do think that a supernatural aspect would be beneficial, mm-hmm. uh, given what has been set up, right. tonally, structurally, all that. Mm-hmm. However, I'm not sure. Back at Gribbertone's headquarters after a successful gig... So I say to this knucklehead, look. Don't, don't get, get all riled up, creamy. Oh, okay, very funny. You've related this account to us um, on several prior just occasions. Just the way it's told, um, it, it felt like a comic book. Like I could see the stills of mm. each character yep. in some kind of pose. They had their own music. They had their own theme. Mm-hmm. Um, very much what I was going for. It's so, it's so Only one way to find like, out. So- Join us brave listeners in our writer's room. Welcome to Right or Wrong. So this is um this is kind of weird because this is technically part of a mini series on uh app or sorry uh, Amazon Prime uh, called Small Axe, which is from director Steve McQueen, who is obviously the uh, best picture winning filmmaker behind Twelve Years Slave, as well as uh, Hunger and uh, most recently um, Widows, and uh, also before that uh, he made uh, Shame with both those that and Hunger with um, Michael Fassbender, but. Yeah, so this is a mini series, but each installment of it is basically feature length, if not um, basically like this one that we're going to talk about, Mangrove, basically a two and a half or not two and a half, but like 130 minute long film. So it's we're kind of getting this weird phase right now with like, you know, we're having conversations about like Twin Peaks season three. Is that a show or a movie or um, what are some other examples of this? Um, Oh, I, I guess with the Queen's Gambit, you know, that's another one where people are, is, is this a film or is this a show, like a miniseries? And so I'm sure some people are going to argue this is technically 
an episode, not a movie, but I don't know where you stand on that, Abby, before we kind of get into the nitty gritty of the movie episode itself. Yeah, uh, I think Steve McQueen has been on record in some interviews as saying that he he sees it as a series of five films. So, like, you could maybe bring it a little bit closer in terms of format to, uh, like, the Decalogue or uh, the Three Colors trilogy, where it's, like, something that is, like, all of the, the individual elements are parts of a whole, but they are also their own films that stand apart by themselves. Yeah, I mean, that's a great comparison, too, because I think, yeah, that, that puts in a little bit easier perspective as far as just examining how to look at these things. Because I know, like, when people are going to be looking at this, like, say, for the end of year best of, like, some people are going to say it's a show, like, examining small acts, the whole thing, or they're going to, some people are going to probably take individual um, episodes or films from this, like Mangroves or next week's Lovers Rock, and examine them as movies. But uh, for the sake of our argument, we'll just make, say this is a movie. <laughs> Uh, because I, I think it is because it's obviously um, telling a s- historical account of the Mangrove Nine, which um, I don't know. If, was this a story you were familiar with going into this? Uh, it was not. This was this was all new to me. And mm-hmm. uh, in general, I have very little knowledge of uh, kind of the history of racial relations in the UK. So the yeah. uh, the the small acts as a whole, the, the series, I think, is going to be really enlightening for me. Oh, for sure. Yeah. But I. I'm in a similar camp. Like I didn't know the story going in, but I didn't want to speak for you as far as if you knew this, but um, yeah, this is based on uh, a story that happened in Notting Hill in West London, where a group of black activists were tried for inciting a riot in 1970. And the film, as far as the first half is establishing the mangrove uh, establishment or the mangrove restaurant, excuse me, that was um, basically the center of the uh, argument or the uh, battle between the restaurant owners and the police or I guess as they're called here, the pulley. Um, and then the second half of this film is examining the actual like 50 plus day that they were on trial and all the uh, different uh, incidents and inciting uh, issues that ensue from there. But um, I guess the main thing that took me aback as far as the uh, presentation of this is that it's a little bit more, I guess, straightforward or conventional than your average uh, Steve McQueen film. I don't know if you felt that way going into this or not, but. Um, it, it felt like it was a little bit more like kind of like your traditional biopic with uh, Steve McQueen type flourishes throughout, uh, which I felt was definitely very interesting. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I, I I would agree that I was kind of surprised throughout, like looking for I kept looking for things that felt more kind of typically Steve McQueen. There were a couple of shots that I thought stood out as things that were like hallmarks of his where he's like kind of looking at um just sort of disruptive impact in specific scenes. And like, there's one particular where uh, the kitchen of the the mangrove restaurant is raided by, uh, by the cops. And you see like the people are like dragged out of the kitchen and like somebody drops a colander and he like holds on a shot of the colander, like falling to the ground, wobbling, kind of stabilizing. And like, he holds it for a very long time, um, which was, it, it reminded me of certain elements of like 12 years a slave and certain parts of hunger as well, um, which is, I think that's the thing that he does really well. Um, there weren't a whole lot of other flourishes that, that struck me as distinctly his own. Um, but actually I was, I think it's, it's interesting that we're getting both this and uh, the, the trial of the Chicago seven in the, uh, in the same year, uh, because I think they make, very interesting, um, like double features back to back. Um, this one's pretty long. Uh, I, I think Chicago seven is too, but, um, it's, yeah. I, I, I don't know that link. I would, <laughs> oh, are enough. they? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I, I don't know that I would recommend watching them like 
right back to back because that that might be a little bit too much in terms of time commitment. But uh, in terms of content, I think it would be interesting to like compare and contrast those. I think that's something that you will probably get a lot of uh, as we sort of wrap up the year because I, I I like Mangrove. Um, I feel like uh, the Chicago 7 film, Aaron Sorkin's film is, I mean, obviously much more like his own kind of a thing where it's like zippy and there's a lot of momentum in the, uh, in the courtroom scenes. I feel like uh, McQueen's film is a little less interested in that. And uh, given its length, there were parts of it, especially around the middle that kind of dragged for me in the, uh, in the trial element. But uh, I think other than that, I think it's pretty good. Yeah. I mean, um, to go off your earlier point, um, I definitely noticed, I mean, even like you said, it's a fairly, uh, conventional or at least what I said a fairly conventional effort from C. McQueen I did notice there's a couple more things that that felt like him for instance there's a scene where um our lead character Frank played by Sean Parkes is uh like kind of held in a holding cell and it's like this really long shot where uh, we see him like kind of banging against the door and then going against the wall and like banging against the door and it's kind of shot in this like uh angelic way because like the window is like shown throughout as he's doing this and it felt very much um like something reminiscent of, like you said, Hunger or some of his earlier films. So I, I definitely think throughout the film, uh, and there's also like a shot where we see like the top of a uh, police car as it's going to the mangrove and it kind of just follows it through the neighborhood that that's felt pretty reminiscent of that tracking shot that we saw in uh, Widows with um, Colin Farrell. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, like you said, like it, it definitely feels like the broad stroke of it was something that Steve McQueen wanted to do in a kind of more traditional or expected fashion, because I think like you're saying the timeliness or the relevance of the story remains so impacting and so true to now that I think he just wanted the, uh, the realism of it to be very apparent and very hard hitting. And I think by and large, he is successful. I think this is a really well-made, really compelling and very, very emotionally gripping story that, um, you know, definitely is benefited by his direction, and his presentation. But I do agree that I, I think because there is that sense of conventionality throughout that it doesn't quite feel like it reaches the heights of his other works. But that's not to say that it's bad. I just think that because he's a director of such outstanding work, that anything that just feels like maybe a little bit more conventional from him just doesn't feel like it hits quite as hard, at least for me. Um, but I mean, I think uh, definitely the elements here that really work are the cast, who uh, which also features uh, Lytha Wright, who uh, people probably best know from Black Panther. And uh, she's I, I mean, I don't want to speak for you, but I thought she was fantastic in this and uh, easily one of her best performances to date. Yeah, I yeah, I like Letitia Wright a lot. I think uh, Sean Parks is also really good uh, throughout. Absolutely. He's uh, as as Frank. I I really did like that scene that you mentioned before with uh, with him in the uh, in the holding cell. I think it's really compelling, and he has a really interesting arc throughout too. Um, but yeah, I like her. I, I like uh, I like Sean Parks. I like Letitia Wright. Um, I think uh, shoot, I'm gonna have to look this up. But uh, the the actress playing uh, Barbara Beast, I had not seen in much before either. But I really oh yeah, her. she's great. She yeah, she yeah. gave a very full bodied performance in that as well. Yeah, I kind of wish she was in it a little bit more because she um you know she gets definitely moments of shine throughout, and I was really intrigued by her character and the way that she was presented in the film. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think we and it's a weird like I said, it's kind of weird film because like you have to examine it as part of a full mini series, which we can't do yet because we can only get one installment at a time. So I'm not quite sure how this compares to the other four installments that we'll see in small acts, but certainly if you just want to watch this as an individual film, I do think it works. I think it's really compelling. And I also think it puts uh, 
even though I liked Trial of Chicago 7 a decent bit, I, I think it ultimately puts it to shame just from a directorial standpoint, because it's so clear that like Aaron Sorkin is a writer who is just directing his material. Stephen Queen is a director and you really see his flourishes throughout, even if it's not as apparent as some of his other works, it's clear that uh, even its conventionality, it, it does really shine a lot. So um, for me, at least this is a B plus. Would you give it Abby? Yeah, I think I'd give it a B plus as well. I, I I agree that I think McQueen is definitely like when you when you use the term auteur, I think uh, in 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 Sorkin's case, I think that's that can be kind of detrimental because some of his hangups end up being kind of annoying after a while. Uh, McQueen's I feel like are always really stylistic and really interesting, um, and this definitely feels like something that is. I mean, also because he helped to write it, I think it's it it feels very personal and significant to him. Um, yeah, I think it's. The the length did end up getting to me. I think it could have used a little more kind of consistent forward momentum, but also I feel like that's not necessarily Steve McQueen's stock in trade. So I think he made the movie that he wanted to make, and I think it's pretty good. So yeah, I'd, I'd give it a B plus. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we should mention that in addition to this installment, um, both uh, Lover's Rock, which is the one that comes up afterwards, and Red, White, and Blue with uh, John Boyega were premiered as part of the New York Film Festival or whatever the New York Film Festival technically was this year, because I believe it was almost all virtual with the exception of uh, drive-in screens throughout New York. But um, yeah, I mean, it seems like of the three, this one got really strong reviews, but it seems like Lover's Rock is the one that people were really taken by of the three that got uh, premiered early. Um, so I'm really excited to see that. I, I imagine you are as well. Yeah, for sure. I've heard really good things about Lovers Rock, and I'm I'm excited to watch that one. Yeah, and I've heard good things about Red, White, and Blue as well. But it seems like of the three, that one's the one that's gained the most acclaim and notice. I think because that one premiered first as well. But uh, which is weird because I guess uh, you know it, it's premiering second for most people, but for the New York Film Festival, it premiered first. But nevertheless, um, that is uh, Mangrove as part of Small Acts. It's available right now on Amazon Prime, as well as uh, on the BBC, who I believe, I think they're premiering, like a, I think, a week earlier than us, because I believe uh, earlier today, uh, if you are watching through the BBC, you can actually see Lovers Rock, but we won't have access to it until Friday. So, uh, yeah, enjoy that luxury, <laughs> uh, because, uh, yeah, you'll, you'll get things a little bit earlier over there. But in any case, um, if you're in, no matter where you are, you can see Mangrove now on, on Amazon or the BBC. But, um, yeah, so... To follow that up, um, I saw another period court drama piece. Uh, this one is certainly uh, quite different in that it's not quite as uh, visually dynamic or made by uh, an esteemed director, but it's called The Last Vermeer, which is the new film from David Franken with a screenplay from John Orloff and that stars uh, primarily Guy Pierce as uh, Han von Mirgen. And then it also has uh, Chloe Spang or Chloe Spang, uh, which is an actor I recognize primarily from The Square. But um, I, I know he's, I think, a little bit more famous for uh, his roles, uh, his Danish roles, as far as his English language work. But this also stars uh, Vicky Kripes, who I believe you all will probably know from Phantom Thread. And she's great in that film. Uh, and I think that's the first thing I've seen her in since then. I don't know. If, is there anything besides this that you can think of, Abby, that, that come out with her? Uh, since Phantom uh, no, I think Phantom Third is the only thing that I had known her from. I know this initially premiered at uh, at uh, the Toronto International Film Festival last year. And so it kind of in terms of career momentum, it, it felt like a natural next step for her. But now at this point, it feels a little bit delayed, which is a bummer because I like her a lot. So I'm excited to see that this is finally getting a release. 
Nice. Yeah. Um, I believe this also was at the Telluride Film Festival, which premiered around the same time. Um, but yeah, I mean, at least for me, it was the this is the first thing I've seen her in. And uh, I think she was also in um, what was it called? The Girl with the Spider, the Girl in Spider's Web, the third installment and the uh, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo uh, trilogy that came out or actually the second installment because we never got the, uh, <laughs> uh, the the follow up from David Fincher. But um, yeah, so this film, um, it's another, like I said, another historical telling. This one is primarily focused on the artist, like I said, uh, Van Han, Han Van Meegren, who uh, is famous for being a forger who basically swindled millions of dollars from the Nazis by forging uh, Johannes Vermeer's paintings and claiming that they were original works of art from him. Alas, that wasn't really the case, but uh, according to the people, uh, according to you know the government, they they thought otherwise because you know th- it was so convincing. But through uh, Claudius Bang's perspective as Captain Joseph Piller, we learned that uh, that's not really the case. And because that is the case, um, his life's on the line through this trial. But um, for the second half of it, like I said, um, we we follow that trial and we see him fighting for his life in order to prove his innocence or at least uh, his mastery as far as being a, uh, an expert forger. But um, as I was telling Abby off the air, it seems like the type of film that I think the more interesting stuff starts to come out in the second half of the film, because that's where we actually get the trial. That's more where we get like the kind of interesting relevation, relevations that uh, start to come out uh, later on. And we get a little bit more perspective as far as uh, who the people are and uh, how they're influencing the trial. The first half is a lot of setup, which is fine, but just feels very perfunctory. Uh, the filmmaking, by and large, is just sort of serviceable, with the exception of uh, Guy Pierce's performance, who really brings a lot of life in this and is clearly having a lot of fun playing this historical figure. But uh, the execution of it, even from some of our established actors, is just kind of ho-hum throughout until we kind of get into the the later half, which is a little bit more uh, dynamic and a little bit more layered in its presentation, which as far as, which as, far as uh, establishing the film, uh, later half is definitely beneficial as far as keeping your interest, but Ultimately, I just leaves you wondering more from that and less of what we got during the first hour of the film, which is a shame because, like I said, I, mean, I think once it finds its rhythm, it is an interesting film. But I think it's a little bit too little too late by that point. But um, in the end, I, I'd say it's it's like a fine low C plus. Like, I, I don't think it's one because it's only available in theaters right now that you should be rushing out to see if it was particularly good. But when it's on VOD, if you want to check it out, maybe it's it's. Um, a very nice grandma type movie in that it's, it's very uh, kind of even paced and uh, it, it has a couple like violent moments and a few moments of sharp language, but for the most part, it's a pretty digestible, digestible film uh, that uh, you can enjoy fairly easily with uh, your extended relatives. Uh, if you <laughs> happen to see them anytime soon, but um, yeah, in any case, uh, it wasn't one that was really on my radar and it wasn't one that super impressed me by the end, but um if it is of interest, you know, it's worth checking out on VOD, like I said. Abby, is this one that was on your radar? It, it was. I was kind of curious about it. It's uh, So when I was at uh, Toronto last year, this and uh, another Clay's Bang movie about art uh, called the, the Burnt Orange Heresy premiered around the same oh, time. Yeah. And I kept getting the two of them confused because they both starred <laughs> him and they had an interesting cast. Um, but it sounds like of the two, because they both came out like this year on on demand, uh, that the Burnt Orange Heresy might be the one worth checking out of the two of them. But like, I also have a space in my heart for uh, you know masterpiece theater style grandma movies. So yeah. who knows? This this may end up making a making an appearance at some point. 
Yeah, I mean, that's a great way to describe it, uh, because that, that, it definitely feels like the type of film that if you take out some of the more uh, R-rated stuff, it would fit perfectly on PBS. And, uh, you know, that's not a dismiss of uh, or that's not a backhanded compliment or anything of PBS. That just means that it seems like something they'd appreciate or something that would air on their st- on their station with with no real problems. But, um, yeah, I, I haven't seen Burnt Orange Heresy, but I know that one's a little bit more, I guess, like uh, risque or at least something that has a little bit more of a like uh, willingness to indulge as our rating in this film is like basically just a pumped up PG-13 film. So I, I feel like that one's probably a little bit more fun as far as what you'll get. But um, like I said, not really my thing, but it might it'll probably have an audience. But I'm more curious to hear what you think of our next film, which is Collective, which is uh, a film I've been hearing a little about this weekend, but I don't know too much otherwise. Could you fill us in on what that is? Absolutely. Uh, so Collective is a documentary by uh, Alexander Nanau. Um, these are all Romanian names, so I'm probably going to butcher most of them. But uh, he is a it's he's a Romanian documentarian, and uh, it is a film about the kind of long term social fallout from a 2015 uh, nightclub fire that happened in Bucharest, Romania. Uh, the name of the club is also collective, so that's kind of where the the name of the film comes from. Though it's also thematically relevant. Um, so there's a giant fire at this nightclub that leaves like over 130 people seriously, uh, seriously injured and 27 people dead. And uh, the the thing that continues to like kind of make this into a giant horror story is the way that the uh, injured folks are treated in hospitals after the event. Like people continue to die at an alarming rate. And uh, the uh, like the I think somebody at one point says that the uh, the ICU rate is like about 90%, which is insane. Um, so it's, it's, it's pretty bad. And that leads to government upheaval. The, uh, the sitting government is replaced with a uh, technocratic government that is there until a, uh, until an election, which will decide basically if they did their job and fixed things or if things need to continue changing. Um, so, uh, Alexander Nanau follows, uh, kind of two major threads throughout all of this. One half is a uh, investigative journalist team. Um, uh, it's a bunch of writers who work for a sports daily. So like they're not hard, like they're not necessarily hard news journalists. That's not their beat. Uh, but they have taken this on as sort of their thing. And uh, they are led by a man named uh, Catalin Tolentan. And they're doing all of this research and finding out really shocking information about why the uh, the death rates in their hospitals are so high. Um, and it turns out to do with uh, the uh, the disinfecting procedures. The disinfectant that the hospitals are using is just like massively diluted, and it all comes from one company that's that's run by this biotech magnate who's just like just about as corrupt as you can possibly be as a human being. Um, and the other half is uh, the uh, the newly installed minister of health, uh, whose name is Vlad Vukolescu. And he uh, takes over from a fairly corrupt uh, predecessor. He's a, a former patient rights advocate. And his part of the film is basically just discovering the um, the uh, uh, administrative depths to which the corruption runs in terms of how hospitals are run in the country and how people get appointed to uh, like hospital administrator positions and his attempts to just basically gut the whole thing from the inside out so that he can kind of start with raw materials and make it more fair and better. And in the meantime, allow people to, um, to transfer abroad, like to go to Vienna for major, major hospital, um, like operations or like burn unit stuff just so that they can get adequate care. 
Um, and he faces a lot of uh, kind of nationalist uh, fallout from from that. There's like a ton of, of negative feedback. Um, so it basically, there's, there's a lot that's really sad and dark about this movie. There's a lot that's really gross too. Uh, like later, I think a, a, a video resurfaces of a, uh, of the way that a patient is being treated in the hospital that is truly upsetting. Um, but the way in which it's handled is just, it's, it's fascinating. It feels like, uh, it feels like you're watching a season of the wire, basically the way that it's filmed and the way that the characters are portrayed, like nobody's pretty, everybody's tired. It's all extremely real. Um, and the story it's, you know, when, when you hear that a movie like, uh, like dark waters from last year or like Aaron Brockovich, when you hear that it's like based on a true story, you you kind of think of like, oh yeah, that's awful, but you don't think of it as like a thing that actually happened because more often than not, the story that happened is kind of outside of your your knowledge of everyday life. And this is like a documentary that feels like one of those movies, except that you're like absolutely acutely aware of how real it is and how bad the system is. Um, it's, I, I really can't say enough good about it. It's such an interesting movie. Um, it's, it's infuriating, but it's also fascinating. Uh, I think, uh, Vlad Voikulescu as a character, it's just like, it's amazing that a person like him exists because he's got like a job that you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy, like running an extremely corrupt and trying to fix an extremely corrupt healthcare system. Um, I mean, you know, take from that what you will, but just especially the way the, the thing that he's put in charge of and the level of corruption that he has to deal with and the way that it on a daily basis is impacting the lives of people who are dying. Um, but he's like exactly the person that you want in that job. Like he is so driven and so like actually considerate and, and thoughtful and really wants to do the right thing that like, it's, it's kind of inspiring to be reminded that people like that actually do exist in real life. So there is even kind of a hopeful element to it, even though I think the film as a whole is still, still pretty dark and sad. Um, it's uh, I, I think in, in today's climate and this particular climate, when we're dealing with a, like a, like a pandemic situation and like deep political divisions, there's, there's a lot that parallels with collective pretty directly in a way that might make it kind of a harder sell than normal, especially during, uh, during holiday times, but just as like a piece of journalistic, like documentation, it's just so impeccably done. And the momentum is really, really good. And he comes across and now comes across these like characters who are compelling, but also just so relatable in every day that it's, it's very easy to identify with them and want to cheer them on. So yeah, that's that's collective for me. I I would give it an A, like high A A plus. It's like one of my favorites of the year. Nice, yeah. I mean, I'm looking at uh, Rotten Tomatoes right now, and it has 100. percent And it seems like a lot of critics are in agreement with you as far as claiming this is not only a masterpiece but one of the best films of the year, uh, including your review. I just saw is here from the Crooked Marquee, so definitely check that out as well. But um. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely love journalistic documentaries like this that they really just tell you the nitty gritty in a true and uh, unflinching fashion. And uh, this definitely sounds like that type of film. So I'm very curious to check this out. And uh, how did you see it? Um, I saw this initially at the uh, the True False Film Festival, but it's okay. out now. Um, I think limited release in some theaters, but it's also on video on demand. So like if I think a lot of theaters are carrying it through uh, their their rent online system. So if you want to support your favorite local art house, uh, you can you can do so by watching it through them, which is another great reason to watch this movie. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely on my radar as of now. So thank you for the recommend. Um, Yeah. And so. For, briefly forgot for a moment I'm still hosting. 
sorry about we're, we're going from that uh, yeah. to uh, a pretty yeah. lighthearted uh, coda here. Yeah. So why don't you tell me about the, uh, right. the Lego Star Wars holiday special? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely in the same vein. Definitely a very gritty, um, you know, raw, unflinching look at the uh, Star Wars franchise. No, um, yeah, this is just a Disney Plus special that was released on Friday. Um, basically, just an effort to kind of expand, I guess, this like new uh, Lego division of the ever-growing Star Wars franchise from Disney's perspective. Um, yeah, I mean, this was just one I checked out because it's pretty short. It's only like 40 something minutes long. And I was initially going to cover it as an off topic. But since we're kind of late on um, feature reviews this week, I figured I'd just talk about real brief at the end here. So, um, yeah, I mean, this is definitely, as the title would suggest, a kind of knock on the uh, infamous Lego or not Lego, regular Star Wars holiday special, which I don't know. Have you seen that, Abby? Um, I, I I would say that I regret to say that I have, but I don't regret to say that I have. I love the original Star Wars holiday special as as goofy and awful as it is. You know, I'm really happy to hear it because that's like I can't defend the original Star Wars holiday special, but I've seen it twice, once sober, once not. Um, and my my takeaway, at least from the first viewing, is that for everything that's wrong with it, it's definitely the type of thing that I'll never really forget because it's such a like coke fueled look at the star Wars franchise before it was even really a franchise. It was just something that George Lucas came up with and like, no one really had expectations for it. And then all of a sudden it's like the biggest movie in the world. And some studios like, well, you got to make a holiday special. Cause that's the thing we do now. And uh, it just came out very ill-conceived and very weird and random, but just filled with all these absurd <laughs> uh, decisions and creative ideas that um, I think definitely make it very interesting as far as its inclusion in the uh, the ever-growing franchise, like I said. For instance, to this date, it's the only Star Wars film that is a musical, which I think definitely puts it above Attack of the Clones. But, um, you know, it's also uh, filled with, like, random animation segments. There's, like, several musical beats as far as, like, just, like, um, random, like, uh, Jefferson Starship numbers and, like, you know, uh, interpretive dance and uh, a, like, weird Cheers sitcom where... Um, B. Arthur is at a cantina and she's like serving drinks to people like through their head. And it's just like, who made this idea? <laughs> like, where, why, yeah, who, let's, yeah, let's yeah. not forget the uh, the Harvey Corman cooking segment with uh, his, his oh, yeah, yeah. whip, 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 stir. Yeah, he's like uh, playing on, uh, I guess, Julia Child or something in that vein. But um, yeah, so in any case, my, my point is that that is a special that whether you like it or not, it sounds like most people don't for a lot of obvious reasons. Uh, I, I think it's going to be in my memory for a long time in a way that the Lego Star Wars holiday special, I'm probably going to forget about by this Christmas. Uh, and that's not to say it's bad. It's fine. It's like, it's very cute as far as what it's trying to do. It, it definitely, it, it's less a like redo of that holiday special than it is a, um, basically kind of like a, a send off on the, um, kind of like time hopping films of other franchises where it's like characters are going, through different timelines and like they're kind of like bringing it has kind of more of a bill and ted's excellent venture kind of vibe where it's just like bringing all these different star wars characters from different points in the uh timeline into one kind of weird collective mishmash of uh absurd events but um for the most part it's just an excuse to have a lot of like callback jokes and like kind of silly ref self-referential humor which, I mean, you know, I, I, I'm i kind of hit or miss on that type of stuff. Like, sometimes I think it's really charming and fun. Other times, I, I think it's kind of cloying and annoying. And uh, I guess I'm somewhere in between with this. Like, some of the jokes are kind of fun and silly in a fairly inspired way. Uh, there's a lot of callbacks to, for instance, like uh, 
um adam driver shirtless appearance in the last jedi they, they get a lot of mileage out of that that whole thing and then like just general things throughout the franchise i won't give away but um it's also just a very like odd inclusion for a number of reasons like for instance there's a whole bit where like lego uh yoda goes on a rant about like participation trophies and it's like played as a joke but it's like seems like something the writers were serious about and so it's just like sit down for a minute and hear what yoga has to say about your participation trophies kids uh which i don't know i mean i i kind of admire it for for doing that because that's more in the spirit of uh lego or the original star wars holiday special than than doing some kind of more corporate thing which is what this ultimately is but in the end it you know it it is what it is i don't think it's going to be for most people like i think it's just going to be for primarily young kids who like star wars and just want to be with these characters even in lego form that's fine um i will say uh kelly rose train is in this more than she is in uh rise of skywalker (laughs) which is um an odd distinction but nevertheless uh i guess that just goes to show how much she was uh travisly or tragically not in the last installment of the actual star wars movie and uh you know again shame for that but um yeah, other than that, uh, I don't know if I really want to give it a grade because it's like a, a special. So it, it, I don't know if it's like a movie per se, but if I were to give it a grade, I'd say it's like a fine C plus. Like it's it's nice. It, it means well. I don't I don't think anyone's going to be like mad that they saw this, but I don't think there's really anything here that unless you're like a hardcore fan or you, you have young children, you're really going to get much out of. All I'll say other than that is um, I don't know who designed Lego Oscar Isaac, but um, he should sue. <laughs> <laughs> because he looks absolutely nothing like Poe to the point where I was like, throughout the special, I was like, who's this, who's this character they keep introducing? Like they, they keep playing him off as kind of like this goofy character. And I'm like, okay, like, I guess he's like a new character. They're going to introduce later on. And it took me about halfway through to be like, Oh wait, that's supposed to be Poe. <laughs> um, yeah. I don't, I don't know who designed that, but for shame. That's uh, Oh man, that's, that's kind of a bummer. Um, I'm glad that Kelly Marie Tran gets more to do in yeah. this though and also that they kept her on for like the uh the the voice yeah. talent for this because it looks like that's not necessarily the case for for everybody else but yeah she she deserves she deserves more good things kelly marie tran does so good for absolutely her. yeah and it seems like she i mean that's why i also feel really bummed about her being out of uh, rise of skywalker is that she seems to really genuinely love the franchise in a way that a lot of the other established actors seem to be kind of over it for understandable reasons, but at the same time, like I, I feel like she deserves a lot better than what she's been given. But um, my only other tiss tiss for this is that there is basically next to no Lumpy in this, which I think for being a Star Wars holiday special is for shame because Lumpy is the heart of the original Star Wars holiday special <laughs> and the main Absolutely. character. Justice for Lumpy. Yeah, justice for Lumpy for sure. And he's like. I don't even think he gets a line. Well, I think he gets like one growl, but like, you know, he's, he is the cart of the star Wars holiday special, the original one. And uh, you you can't throw him in the corner on my watch. So um, yeah, I mean, that's my kind of rambling thoughts on (laughs) um, the, uh, the star Wars holiday special. In addition to the other names we mentioned, there is also um, Anthony Daniels and um, Billy D Williams reprising their roles from star Wars, mostly in cameo fashion, but you know, they're there. Um, but other than that, you know, it's on Disney plus if you want to check it out during the holidays, like I said, it, it just kind of depends on how you feel about star Wars at this point. Uh, for me, I'm kind of over it. So I guess I, I wasn't really the key audience for this, but if you like it, I'm, I'm sure you'll get a lot of mileage out of it. Uh, are you planning to check this one out, Abby? I don't think so. 
Yeah, I I don't know. I might. Um, I I thought about it a little bit. If there's if there's any particular thing, you know, moment where I'm I'm feeling like I'm in the need of some some holiday cheer and pick me up. But um, honestly, it sounds like I might get a little bit more mileage out of uh, going on YouTube and watching the uh, OG really really bad Star Wars holiday special again. So I might just do that instead. Yeah, I mean, I would say definitely like get some eggnog and have some friends on zoom and watch the original over uh watching this lego version because i, th- I think that that'd be more fun to riff on than than watching this which is like i said fairly self-aware and therefore it's not like something you can really pick apart or really like joke about and like the uh the same way you can enjoy the original uh holiday special but like i said it's self-aware enough that i think it's not trying to be more than what it is and so yeah, that's basically what it is. <laughs> um, but that's our show. Uh, a very rambling and uh, uh, less organized fashion. But um, Abby, we made it through. <laughs> we did. I thought you did a pretty good job. I, I oh, think John you. would be proud. Uh, we'll see. I'm sure I'll get some notes. But, um, you know, we'll, we'll figure it out. But uh, there'll be future rabbi- future arguments that I'll have to disentangle in uh, in skits <laughs> from here on out for the rest of the year, I think. Basically, yeah. Um, but <laughs> Yeah. So if you want to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, iTunes and Stitcher, we'd really appreciate that. We always uh, love hearing from our fans and and hopefully it's positive reviews. I mean, if you feel someone inclined to write negatively, I guess I can't stop you, but um, do what you must. Uh, you can also hang out with us on Facebook and Tinder or Tinder, uh, Facebook and tic- uh, Twitter. And you can also email us at cinemaholicspodcast at gmail.com. Whew. All right. That's our <laughs> show uh, from the Internet, Pennsylvania. I'm Washington. From the internet, Kansas City, I'm Abby Olchesi. All right, see you, everybody.